0: All right, my friend, welcome to The Man Talk Show. How are
1: you doing? Oh, good. Great to be with you here. Thanks for the invitation.
0: Oh, well, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I have admittedly, I don't say this very often. I don't think maybe my maybe my listeners will probably tell me this, but uh, I'm a big fan of yours. I've been watching a bunch of your content. Oh, so I stumbled across it on, on Instagram and really loved the things that you were talking about. I felt like it was very very appropriate for the time that we are in and some of the things that are going on. So I'm excited to have our conversation and to dive in today. So with all that said, we will begin where I always begin these conversations, which is tell us a story about a defining
1: moment in your life that made you who you are today. Well, you know, as I think about that, it's my practice has always been when you're in hormone therapy, as you can imagine, it's pretty focused on usually on older people on you know menopausal women and men that are kind of midpoint in life where hormones start to trail off and something that kind of made me change course is I started seeing these younger and younger men come into my office and I'm just my jaw kind of dropped because these are these are athletic guys some of them uh, college athletes and one of them is a professional ball player and they have these abysmal hormone levels and it just was shocking to me and it got me looking into this deeper and and when I found out that yeah it's not just me this is a this is a phenomenon that we're seeing out there and so I started reading up and looking for for information on it and I realized wow this this shifts this kind of shifts my whole practice and in fact the social media following when we look at it sure enough it's the, it's those younger guys that are the biggest percentage in the demographic, so I realized well, we have a, we have a whole new issue, a whole new challenge on our hands here when we talk about hormones so I think that that was a big shift for me
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting right it's It's like one of those things where the people that we think need our help and the people that actually need our help are sometimes very different you know and so it's, it's interesting to to hear you say that so well let's let's just dig straight in. I'm going to ask a very broad question, which is what the hell is happening with men's testosterone rates? What's actually going on? Because I think, you know, a lot of guys see in the news, they see all these news articles and it's like testosterone rates are dropping and plummeting and maybe they have their T levels tested and it's terrible. And so kind of paint a little bit of a broad picture for us and then we can dig
1: deeper into some of the the things that are going on. Okay, sure. So you said what's happening. That is what's happening. What we're seeing is this This manifestation of, so not only bad labs and and bad or substandard sperm analyses, but the manifestations, the clinical manifestations are there too. But they just don't, they don't expect it, so they're not looking for it, right? So, I guess the, the bigger question is, what is causing this? What is at the root of it? And, you know, Connor, I don't know that we know that for sure. It's really hard to know something like that because it's difficult to test. So, all we're left with sometimes is is to rule things out and look at what's changed, what's different. There are a lot of hormone therapy practitioners out there that would say the bulk of this, the cause of this, uh, should be borne by the fact that we're fatter and less healthy, and that does track sort of over the last fifty years with the you know the, the advent of, of much more processed food and fast food. It does, but I still don't think it accounts for for all of it. So what's happening? Well, if you look at, look at the evidence, especially the work of, of Dr. Shauna Swan, she's a, a PhD uh, epidemiologist, reproductive epidemiologist, which means so they study temporal trends over time of disease states, or you know, if you call this a disease state, I would. And she's done a lot of work with phthalates. That's what she's kind of known for. But all other environmental toxins as well. As they test them, they realize, wow, there's, there's something strong enough here that they gave it a name called the phthalate syndrome. And it was first identified in mice, but it can get in at a key time in utero development of the fetus at a time when there's a differentiation there occurring in the, in the genders and the genitalia are forming. And if phthalates get in there, they're, they're a, an androgen blocker. They're strong enough receptivity there on that androgen receptor, that they'll get pulled there and they they can sit there and block it. Well, a male fetus is absolutely dependent on enough testosterone to convert to DHT to make sure that that differentiation occurs properly. Otherwise, you get get malformations, physical malformations of the penis, of other reproductive issues, but also, also the brain, because brains start to differentiate between male and female early on and so we can talk about that and we should because it's it's really interesting but to stay on track with what's what's going on with sperm counts there can be changes in utero that are not reversible this is what her research suggests and so that to me says okay, that's got to be significant that has got to be a factor in what we're seeing i don't know how you can say it isn't because mm. it, it it proves out but it's as i said it's hard to test because who's going to do that trial right right yeah test, withhold test. with testosterone from somebody right and give it, give it to the others now it's just it's not ethical so we're we're left sometimes as people people give me that complaint all the time well there there's not good research on it well you know what there's probably about as good a research as we're going to get on it and so you can't take it past a certain point so you have to look at animal studies and you have to look at retrospective when you see this manifest go backwards and look at what the exposures were, if you can, to identify those in the pregnant mom. And do you have, because I, I think, let's
0: do a couple of things. Can you do and give us a bit of an insight into what the testosterone decrease has looked like? Because I've seen varying, you know, degrees anywhere from like, oh, there's been a 10% decline to a 50% decline. And so I've kind of heard differing things. So I'd love to hear about that. And then I'd like to actually get into what role does testosterone actually play in a man's development? Because I think that part is also very important and we can get into the brains after that.
1: Yes. Okay. So after birth, development after birth. Yes. So yeah, the, the data are pretty strong. She, it was, I think it was 2017 she was the darling of the media. She was on all the the major news magazines, New York Times, all, all the media were featuring this, this study that she released. And that was the one that showed that there is, and it's best to look at it over a period of time because the longer period of time identifies it more of a trend. And that's what they're looking for in epidemiology. So over 50 years, average of about 1% a year, because it has dropped 50%. and it's, And it seems to be the later studies that are coming out seem to be that it's continuing and getting a little bit steeper. Mm. So this is a concern. It's not resolved. And that's another reason. I mean, we just look around at what's not changing, what's getting worse, these toxins, and we'll talk about it. Just phthalates are just one. There's there's a lot there. So now what was your question about the development? Yeah, I
0: mean you were talking about maybe we can start at the very beginning and work our way forward because okay. you were talking about the differentiation between the male brain and the female brain forming, I think, in utero. And I've heard a, a lot that testosterone plays a big development in a child's brain and in a child's body. So, can you, can you just break down a little bit of, of the role that testosterone plays based on what we know?
1: Yeah. So, in the developing fetus, they've done interesting studies on this uh, where actually the, the brains are quite different as toddlers. So, this is before any, any real difference in testosterone levels. Girl babies and boy babies pretty much have the same at that, at that point. But yet, they play differently. The boys will go for trucks, and the girls will go for playing house at that young level. And they, and they have noticed that there, there is a change in that natural tendency toward being more feminine, having more feminine leanings in these males that have, have had that interruption in utero and that window is about a seven it's about week 7 to 12 and we don't know exactly when it is They know exactly when it is in mice because they have a shorter half-life or shorter lifespan rather but it's just you can't overemphasize to to pregnant women and of course their their partners the fathers that this time frame is critical boy if you can just be really careful about exposures especially to so where phthalates are is they're in plastics They're in fragrances. And when I say plastics, that includes like vinyl. One of the things that are most common in in homes these days are these LVP, uh, luxury vinyl planks, the flooring. So you're covering all the floor in your house. That's off-gassing phthalates. It is. So what do you do about it? Well, you try and build with with better materials, with, say, say hardwood if you want a plain surface or, or ceramic tile or something like that. But if you can't, and, you know, you can't rip everything up in your home, well... Then you have to filter the air. You, you've got to filter the air in your home. The air in your home is worse than the air pretty much anywhere. Although a study I looked at showed that it was actually the worst in your car because you're surrounded by all the plastic and, and uh, synthetic materials that are, that are off-gassing. So I have one in my car too. I have a, a, an air filter in there it, with a carbon filter in it. That's what you've got to have because carbon will remove essentially all endocrine disruptors carbon filter in the house and the car in including the intakes to your furnace hmm. the, most people will buy i don't know the cheapest filter that they can find at home depot right because you got to change them every month or so often uh, but the truth is that if you buy the kind that are what they'll usually say on them is odor reducing or good for if you have pets and that. Like. what that means is there's a carbon filter on there and it adsorbs those molecules like pet dander and things like that but also volatile organic compounds and things that are like phthalates that are floating around in the air so that's a whole house filtration system which i firmly believe in but also you have to have other air filters in the house that's i don't think that's enough did i get off track there
0: no 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 you're good you're good man you're good you're good this is grabbing this is fascinating because i think those are just not things that I would have even thought about, but I, I want to come back to the, the phthalates and get a sense of how in utero or even after, I think you're giving some, some good insight into after that. I think all this is good information. The one thing that I'd like to dive into is to understand a little bit more about how does testosterone impact the development of a child in utero, right? Because I just had a son. He's two and a half years old. And I'm curious, what role does testosterone play in the brain development or the development
1: of the child in utero? Let's just start there. Okay, sure. So at a at a certain window of time in the pregnancy, and it's it's early on, um, sometimes, I mean, it's, it's getting close to, to before a woman even knows she's pregnant. It's around week seven to 12 or so. This is the time when you're having that differentiation. The the genitalia are are forming. The penis is forming. It, talking about males, of course. And when and and that is dependent on a certain presence a level of of dihydrotestosterone DHT, which is converted from testosterone. If that's not there, you basically you become a phenotypical female because it will not differentiate. So it's that important. But usually, there's not a total block. If there's, a, if there's a block, it's kind of an interference, and you don't want an interference at that way. You want full force male hormone when these male characteristics are, are taking shape. And so in addition to that, and by the way, sometimes the manifestations in that will be a, will be a malformed penis. Hypospadius is, is, a, is a condition where the urethra opens not on the end, but say on the bottom of the, of the shaft of the penis. And that's, I mean, it's a birth defect. Let's just, let's face it, you don't hear about it because nobody sends out announcements about it, but it's happening more and more frequently. And that's a, that is a direct result of interference at that key time when that male hormone has got to be strong and got to be there and fully potent. So there's that, um, it can be repaired by the way, surgically repaired, but the things that can't change are changes that take place in the brain. And this a lot of this isn't definitive yet, but this is the direction it's heading. We're seeing that these these boys and girls when they when they're born they they have distinct male and female brains, even at that early age of one and two these toddlers when they're when they're playing with each other and they've done really interesting tests on this and they can they can measure this, but they they play differently when in a male brain he goes more for for trucks and things like like that that are you know, sort of stereotypically male or boy toys, whereas the females will go for playing house and, and dressing dolls and, and this sort of thing. And, and they have looked at that in cases where they know there was phthalate exposure. And so what this suggests, Connor, is to me is, wow. So I immediately start thinking gender dysphoria. And in that that area, there haven't been studies done on it. And And frankly, as i've sort of tested this talking about it i consider doing a reel on it and talking about it because to me it's interesting it's it's validating actually there's something there's a reason this dysphoria can be explained and they then they call it dysphoria even those that have it it's i don't think too many people would choose it if they had a choice it's a difficult thing and i have i have great uh, compassion and sympathy for for those folks that struggle with that it's not their fault if this is what's happening there are brain changes early on that could lend some some explanation to this.
0: Yeah, I, I, rec- I recall hearing about a piece of research that was done that was looking into the, the neurological differences between boys and girls in play. And I, I can't remember exactly who did the research, and so I'd have to pull it up, and maybe we can have this in the show notes after. But basically what it found was that young girls are more neurologically wired for psychosocial mm-hmm. interaction. And so their, their, their brains will actually map and are more geared towards looking at social interactions between others. That's why they're, you know, playing with dolls and playing with house and, and whatnot, that there's actually a neurological wiring for that. And boys are neurologically more wired towards psychophysics. And so how <laughs> things move, how things operate, that they're, that the the parts of the brain that are trying to track movement, you know, ball throwing, stuff like that, yeah. is actually more pronounced in young boys. And if I'm not mistaken, the research actually talked about how testosterone is one of the key developmental factors in being able to create that differentiation. And so when you start to impact testosterone in utero, in development, you impact those brain centers within the, the child uh, who is then born. And so Let's just, you, you mentioned phthalates being a, dis, a testosterone disruptor or a DHT disruptor. Did I get that right or have I mistaken that?
1: Yeah, an endocrine disruptor. And specifically,
0: they have affinity for the androgen receptor,
1: okay. which, which is okay. that, that's what's involved in that.
0: And this is where the whole microplastics conversation
1: comes into play. Is that right? Microplastics, yeah. In addition to their just their physical presence, which is a big deal. They're finding this in cardiac surgeons They're finding microplastics in the heart the size of a like a, like a half a grain of rice. i don't know how that happens, but anyway, so there's that physical that that nobody wants something insoluble like that coursing around their veins, but there's also endocrine disrupting properties that, that come from those microplastics because you know it's, it's get in everywhere. The, the situation of pregnancy to me is really interesting because this is the time what else? What else can you contribute to gender differences? It has to be a sex hormone, because it's the only thing that's different between boys and girls. And the the pregnancy scenario is interesting because you, you don't have a a woman that's like putting testosterone on, or it's, it it seems to me like it's it's easier to look at and and draw some conclusions from. I don't know, it's not scientific, I will admit, but so yeah, that's microplastics are, are a big deal, and then you know we can go on through the list.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're, I think we're going to go down the, the rabbit hole a little bit and talk about some of the chemicals that can, do, that can get in the way. Can you talk a little bit about how phthalates, my, microplastics, like what that actually looks like in terms of disrupting the androgen system and actually getting in the way of proper testosterone production? Because I think that this is something yep. we hear about microplastics. We know it's bad. We keep drinking out of the plastic water bottles. We don't think it's a big deal. And I think largely it's because the biological underpinnings of what's happening in our bodies is just largely unknown. You know, we just, we just don't have the connection. So can you put some of those pieces together in terms of how phthalates I- interact with that system and get in the
1: way of our testosterone production? So largely, well, you said largely unknown, but I would also suggest that it's, it's far from their thoughts. We have pretty good data on this. That these phthalates and, and other parabens and PCBs, PFOS, these things interrupt at, at a cellular level in vitro, in animals, and studies in humans that have been done. So what it isn't is it's not present right here in front of us all the time. It's, it's like anything that's sort of sort of chronic and what's the word I'm looking for. It's slow creeping. And so those things we don't pay attention much to. We pay attention to a, a fever or pain but these kind of things it's 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 easy to kind of put them out of your mind and not think about it but and yet look at what's happening to fertility in the human race that you can't ignore to get back to your to your question of what happens okay so now now postnatally after birth and let's say past puberty okay so now you have flowing testosterone and flowing female hormones as well what's going on with endocrine disruptors at that point and what it is so we monitor hormones in the blood and it's probably the best indicator that we have uh, if someone is deficient or if it's, it's fine if it's adequate but if you have something that is sitting on that receptor even part-time they don't they don't just park there these things fly on and off uh, testosterone does and other things too according to their affinity for that receptor and that's different but all it has to have is a little bit of an impact and then it gives a false signal or blocks. The circulating testosterone from accessing and giving the true signal for whatever it is that we're talking about—sperm production, uh, muscle development, secondary sex characteristics—all those things that testosterone does. So, can you see how looking at just looking at labs is just not the whole picture? Because you're not going to see what's sitting on those receptors, and it—and it does. It just sits there, and it'll have a partial effect, but it, it doesn't do what it was designed to do. So that's that's where we have these issues. Now, that can be that can be reversed. But if someone has something from when they were in the womb, those things are hardwired. This is why it's so critical early on in a pregnancy when brains are forming that the environment be as pristine as it can be because things that are done at that point uh quite often are, are very hard to reverse.
0: And what what does that look like when you say pristine is possible? Does that mean avoiding using plastic water bottles, like what can pregnant women do in order to combat some of the negative environment, let's just say, or some of the things that would naturally be high in in microplastics or phthalates in order to make sure that, I think you said that seven to 12 week period of gestation that they're actually producing as healthy of an environment
1: as possible. I mean, you can't live in a bubble. You've got to live in the world and and function. So what we look at is just kind of a a grouping of the most common exposures to these things. And it's, you I know, mean, we've talked about phthalates, as, but think of it as representative of of a whole host of endocrine hormone disruptors. So I have a, a tool that I've developed that I call uh, Hormone Disruptors My Exposure Score. It, it walks you through your home and in five areas, so the kitchen, personal care products, um, home furnishings. Anyway, there's a number of things and, and it walks you through there, And with the, with the help of some apps that are, they're not mine, apps aren't mine, but they're, they will help you to understand, is this contributing? So when we walk through the kitchen, what kind of pans are you using? What kind of storage containers for, what do you warm food up in? What do you use in your, in your microwave? Just yeah,
0: cleaning, cleaning products are a big one, I've heard.
1: Cleaning products, yes, absolutely. So you've got all these things that you just don't even know it's, it's doing. And most people don't, they're, they're just not aware. So it walks you through and helps you, and it'll give you a, a numeric score. This is your, in this area, you've got significant exposure. And c- probably one of the biggest ones is the kitchen, frankly. Drinking water. You mm-hmm. fil- you've got to filter your water because it's, these things just are, are in the drinking water and they don't get filtered out at the, at the water treatment plants. So knowing what they are and then avoiding them as much as possible is, is all you can do. But, but being aware that you might be pregnant is important. And the earlier you find out, because then you'll you'll be more you know vigilant, more cognizant of what's what's around you and what you take in. But but a good example is like we worry about a a pregnant woman the amount of caffeine or coffee she takes. Well, you you never worry about that except for if it gives you trouble sleeping, right? In in everyday life, you just don't worry about those things. But that sensitivity during that time is is different. I mean, the importance of it is is very different there because the the effects can be lifelong. So yeah. does that answer your question? So to help, help people understand where they're getting that exposure, then they, then they can know what to do.
0: Yeah. It's, it's interesting because as you're talking about this, I remember my wife when she, as soon as she found out she was pregnant, stopped drinking caffeine, she replaced all of the cleaning products in the house. And I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, And she's like, no, we can't have these cleaning products in the house. She's like, we shouldn't have had these to begin with. And so she like literally replaced all of them. And we, and we haven't gone back since. And, and a lot of it was because she had done her due diligence in preparation for getting pregnant yeah. and had read a lot of, you know, that, that there's these microplastics and that there's these, you know, forever chemicals that are in a lot of cleaning products that we don't even think about it. And we're spraying it on our counter and then we're, you know, we're cooking and we're eating on that counter and our skin mist on that counter. And, you know, it's really, you're, you're inundated and interacting with that chemical much more, you know, when I started to think about it, and I started to research this, because obviously, you know, my organization is, we work with thousands of men, right? And so one of the biggest issues that a lot of men are experiencing is low testosterone rates. And it manifests in sometimes mood disorders, and, you know, low energy rates, and, you know, a whole host of challenges. And so can you just speak to what Some of the side effects are some of the manifestation, the physical, mental, emotional manifestations
1: of low testosterone within men. Yes. But I just realized I kind of didn't finish answering your question. So so what does it do and how does it then impact testosterone levels? If there's something sitting on that receptor, it interferes with a pretty intricate loop, feedback loop and communication between the glands and the brain, hypothalamus, pituitary, and then the various glands, whether it be the testes, the the thyroid glands, the adrenal glands, where, where the action takes place. It reads that, it reads that interference as a possible source of, of androgen, and so it scales down. That's where you can have this end result of low T because it's misread what is actually present. Part of what's present is not true testosterone. But yet it will interact with that receptor in that way.
0: So the phthalate <laughs> will sit on the on the androgen receptor and almost act as like a blocker, or it'll fool the androgen receptor into thinking that there's that there's something there when in fact it's not necessarily androgen or or DHT that's going to be produced and create testosterone.
1: Is that right? Yep. Yeah. So so that the fact that it's sitting there is what drives the the physical manifestations, which are which are a decrease in libido. There's a sexual side of it, you know, so decrease in in sex drive, sex enjoyment, erectile function. And women also experience this. They're dependent on on that for uh, the full sexual picture. The other thing is you've got testosterone converts to estradiol, and that's important. It's important in men, and it's important in women. Estradiol has major beneficial effects on bone density, on skin, Reduces risk of of Alzheimer's and dementias. Reduces macular degeneration, which is the most common cause of, of blindness in people over fifty. These manifestations: weakness, muscle loss, just a kind of a lack of, uh, of of strength. And then there's the then there's the things that go on in in the head. When I explain to people what it is this testosterone is doing, I I, I tell them quite often someone a woman sitting in my office. And I ask her how it's going. And I know she just started these 90 days ago. And she'll she'll tell me some of the things and then the sexual things will be there for sure. Um, and then she she kind of struggles to articulate what it is, and then she finally just says, I just feel better. And that's true. There's a there's an effect on the brain that's much like an antidepressant, and it, it gives you this drive to get out there and do the things that you like to do, to actually be a little competitive at it, which is part of life. And without it kind of become a couch potato. This is what, this is what we see. I just don't, I don't feel like doing it. And that includes exercise. So you try and get somebody to exercise, it's a, it's a vicious circle. You don't exercise, you get less testosterone. You get less testosterone, you don't feel like exercising. So it, it just, it just spirals downward. And so that's, that's kind of how it manifests. And then it's, there's it's, also the sperm issues too, sperm and quality and, and fertility. They yeah. We're, I think we're going to, we're going to
0: take a, a right turn into that here in just a sec, but it's, it's interesting. I heard somebody say that uh, dopamine is the molecule more and testosterone is the molecule of drive. And I like that because in some, in some ways it's like, yeah, it's creating direction and not necessarily motivation per se, but the, the sort of underpinnings of the, of the urge to, to go and do, to go and create, to go and build, to go and whatever it is.
1: Bring home the um, bacon, defend your family, you know, be
0: the yeah. be the provider
1: be strong. Yeah. And,
0: and so let's go into this piece around um, sperm counts because I was reading and in preparation for this, that researchers have found a, like a 52% decline in sperm concentration and a 59% decline in total sperm count. And one of the videos that I watched from you, which I really loved what you said, you said, what's good for sperm is good for men's health. I was like, oh, that's, that's such a good tagline. <laughs> like that needs to be on billboards everywhere, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So talk, talk to us a little bit of like what the heck is happening with the declining uh, sperm rates within men, what are some of the concerning factors, what do we need to know? So I'm just going to open it up to you and we'll see where this goes.
1: Okay. So the production of sperm is dependent on, on testosterone levels being adequate not only circulating testosterone, but especially in the testicles, intratesticular testosterone levels. A sperm analysis has turned out to be a pretty good prognostic indicator for general health. They'll find it's associated with longer life, more healthy, a longer health span, they call it. Why is that? Well, maybe because the same things that affect sperm affect other disease processes. Testosterone has just taken on this much more important and broader Function or our understanding of it, so that we know that it it is important in the in the disease processes that are going to kill us frankly uh, heart attacks strokes diabetes these things are all less when testosterone levels are are maintained and they're and they're good so with these young men that I see, I encourage them, and I encourage all young men everywhere you don't know if you fall into this category, you may not find out that it's hard for you to to conceive and father a child until you try and then it's not working takes longer than a year that's considered a fertility problem takes longer uh, than a year to conceive so these guys really kind of need to know what their sperm count is so their sperm as you mentioned sperm concentration there's the count there's the motility if they're able to move properly or if they just run around in circles uh, morphology and then what they call dna fragmentation how's the how's the health of the of the payload in the head of the sperm which delivers and unites up with the with the cell and creates that and gives its genetic contribution so all of those things play into fertility and men need to step up and realize that if there's a fertility problem that's traditionally been been put on women they've had to shoulder that and not so that we're finding out that men are contributing significantly to this at, at least half the time I would say the these days, and so knowing that ahead of time, why would that be important? Well, because it's not going to get significantly better well, if you can change it with some lifestyle things, yes, you can, but if there's a genetic thing like I talked about before going on, you're gonna want to consider maybe maybe freezing some while you're younger, and while we know that sperm counts are are higher, the younger we are, and so that sperm is more is more virile. it's going to be much more likely to to produce a successful pregnancy. And it's not, frankly, it's not that expensive as, as you would think. So there's a there's a, a service that I like. It's called um, givelegacy.com. I like them because they'll, it, you can do this in your own home. I used to have to go into a sperm bank and what guy wants to go in there and perform on command. So you can do this at home, send it in. And then they also have the option, then they'll present it. They'll un- analyze the whole thing. And then give you the option. Do you want to consider storing some? And I want to say it's like something like eighty dollars a year or something to store firm and it, and it can keep for a long time. By the way, also they're they're washed, they're kind of purified, they they weed out the the bad swimmers, the riffraff. and so you're left with a, a better sample anyway. So there's that that consideration. Did I answer that? What?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'm I'm getting it. I'm just getting a a chuckle out of the the notion that some sperm are riffraff. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just I'm over here thinking about these like little swimmers just going around in a circle. And it's like, oh hey, yeah, there, there's there's the glass clown right there. We gotta weed that one out. But no, I mean it's it's I think what's interesting about this is, you know, you got me thinking uh, with that notion of what's good for sperm is good for men, because you think about something as simple as inflammation or having a higher body temperature and that's going to be bad for sperm and so even something as simple as inflammation uh in the body is net negative for sperm but i would also imagine is net negative for testosterone production so all these things kind of go hand in hand um where uh, we'll get to some maybe more like solution oriented things in a second here where do things like glyphosate atrazine fit into this equation with testosterone production and sperm count because you know, glyphosate and atrazine have been getting this big media debut. They've been in the news a lot. And one of the things that kind of pisses me off quite a bit about what happens is that these things get a lot of media attention and then nothing happens. And so we say, hey, well, red flag, these things are terrible for you. And yet we do very little oftentimes to actually curb any of it. And, you know, in other places like the EU, if I'm not mistaken, they've completely banned any product with glyphosate or atrazine entirely, like you just are, you cannot use it. And maybe there's maybe there's people that are getting around that and whatnot. But where do these types of chemicals fit into the equation? Why are they used? How do they disrupt the system? And is it something that
1: we should look out for? Well, we certainly should look out for glyphosate, uh, which is a, the active ingredient in Roundup. Oh my gosh, they have they have settled. Oh, it's a huge number. I'm trying to remember what it is—hundreds of millions of dollars with patients or claims of cancer, leukemias, and that's that's where its biggest danger is. I'm not sure that the endocrine disruption uh, aspect of glyphosate is as strong as it is, say with atrazine. Atrazine, another strong herbicide, used widely across the country. If you look at a, you can look at a map by the USDA, Department of Agriculture, and you can see look uh, across the country you can see the right down the corn belt it's just and it goes back 70 years or so and you can just watch watch it grow and spread but it's in those largely rural areas where you feel like you're wow I'm out in the in the open air and this is great it's a much healthier place to live well filter your water because that all those crops around you look pretty with no weeds because there's wide pesticide use and they've made, the, they've made the crops resistant to the pesticide so that they can spray and kill the weeds selectively. But that goes into the water supply. Atrazine is an endocrine disruptor. It is. It's a strong one. And gosh, in Germany, they banned it in the 70s, atrazine. And then there was a study done in the 90s, like 20 years later. And the levels in the, in the groundwater were what they, I think the wording was, uh, not significantly different from what they were 20 years ago. This gives you an idea of how long these things stay in the environment. Atrazine takes a long time to break down. And this is one of the reasons a lot of the European countries banned it back then. All, all they had to go on was, we don't like the levels of this in our water and in our, in our soil that we're looking at, because it goes right to the water. Mm. And so if there isn't any place in this country, I don't think, where you could do a water sample and not find atrazine. So we don't know necessarily, but we don't need to know. It's going to be really harmful. There's too much here. If it is, the cost is too high. It is not worth the risk. And so they just said, no, we're not going to do this. Since then, there's been a lot more research. Why doesn't the U.S. do it? We still spread 70 million pounds of this across the states yearly. Why? I'll tell you why. Big ag and corrupt government, honestly. The data's there. It should be banned. The influence and the money is so, is so strong and so big, politicians just aren't willing to do it. I looked it up and uh, Bayer, who owns
0: the rights to most of the glyphosate or, or produces a lot of the glyphosate product, in 2020 paid a $10.9 billion settlement for the weed killer that had gly- glyphosate in it to settle cancer claims because it was proven that the usage of any Roundup weed killer uh, was causing cancer. So atrazine, can you say a little bit more about atrazine? And so that's, again, that's an endocrine disruptor. And so that kind of plays into the microplastics thing that we were talking about, or is it a little bit different? Does it function differently? Well, And, and where do we find atrazine? Is it just in fertilizer?
1: Yeah, because it's, it's synthesized. Syngenta is the main producer of that. And these companies, they generally, they generally have both sides of, of this picture. They've, they've got the seeds that they genetically modify so that it can take the fertilizer that, that they produce also, so they go together. They sell them together, then they just grow. And they, after a while, even a conventional farmer that doesn't use it gets cross-pollinated with it. And so, in some ways, I'm I kind of wish those settlements hadn't happened because I'd like to see it go through to trial and actually have an outcome. Maybe that would be a little more impactful. I don't know, but you think of these victims and you want to you want to do something for them, but but an acknowledgement, a multi-billion dollar settlement, uh, there's, yeah, come on. It doesn't take a genius to figure out there's something there's something they're worried about, right? They don't want this to go to yeah, trial. It's,
0: it's interesting because I think, I mean, we we live hours north of the city in New York and we've started to, you know, I mean, we're surrounded by small farms and so we've started to every week we go and we buy our vegetables and whatnot from local farms. And we've asked, like, do you, do you use any products with glyphosate? Do you use anything with atrazine? And, and we'll, we'll do our best to try and buy from people that just don't use any of these, any of this stuff anymore. And, you know, have as close to, you know, clean farming and organic farming as, as humanly possible. But, you know, if you're, if you're in a different situation, it's a very challenging thing. You know, I mean, there's there's food deserts in America where they, you know, they're, they're, they're struggling to just get any type of vegetation, right? Any type of like v- vegetables and just in general. And so, and you know, not to mention inflation and, and a whole bunch of other things. And so it really is, it, it's, you know, I think in some ways it's a bit of a bleak picture. And we talk about declining testosterone rates. We talk about declining you know, sperm count. And I think you've given some some good counsel in terms of what men can start to do, you know, get your sperm count checked, you know, get your testosterone levels checked. What are some of the things outside of that, that we can start to do that are going to support healthy sperm production, that are going to support healthy testosterone production, um, that that are realistic, that are tactical, that we can begin to implement?
1: So do you mean in the way of um, like supplementation or things that you can do interventionally? Or do you mean all preventively? It. Okay. Yeah,
0: let's let's go. Let's go. Let's, let's talk about all of it.
1: <laughs> okay. All right. So prevention-wise, I mentioned before the filtering of water. You can be really vigilant about what, what you bring in with food. And I, I'm a big uh, proponent of, of organic food. I fully concede that it's not perfect. The organic label is not perfect. There are some real issues that I have in some areas there. But it's the best we have. And it's better than than nothing. But even then, be sure that you wash off. This stuff can blow in the wind. So be sure you wash the vegetables carefully. But even when you do all that, it can still go around you and be in your water supply. And so then you drink it. I mentioned water filtration. And the most important thing there is, is knowing what kinds of filtration will remove that stuff. And what I said before is carbon activated charcoal or carbon filtration. It has to have that component in it and reverse osmosis. Or distillation, that's another way you can you can get it. But and people, people say, well, I don't like reverse osmosis because it takes all the minerals out. Well, you can add them back in. There are things that you can supplement those minerals back in. But that's what you need in order to remove these hormone disruptors. I'm not so concerned about them. Like people ask me, well, what about the shower? Or what about the bathtub? You know, when I soak in it? The shower is it's such a, a brief uh, exposure to it. And not as systemic absorbed or systemic um, consumption, so I'm not as worried about that. I mean, if you do that and you use a, a filtration or a filter on your showerhead, great, that's fine. You've got to filter that water that you drink and cook with. So there's that. We talked about the air. Also, you've got to eat well, and what I mean is is less processed food because that's gonna that's gonna spike your insulin, and that will lead to. This whole metabolic syndrome where you get increased blood pressure, increased or poor lipid panels, gaining weight, and that, all of that affects testosterone negatively. Another big thing is stress. Now, I'm talking about that for a second because stress in and of itself is not a bad thing. In fact, it's, it, it evolved to be a very functional and useful thing. But what the problem is these days is non-threatening stress. And the body doesn't differentiate well between them. So I'm talking about stress at work. I'm talking about stress in relationships, stress just about anything that makes you worry. Those kinds of things, most people probably know, increase the, the uh, secretion of cortisol. Cortisol is a very, very useful, we die without it. It's a very useful hormone. It drives you to into the sympathetic state where you are prepared to meet the threat, whatever it is decreases circulation to to the the digestive system anything that's non-essential and that would include testosterone production so it reduces testosterone production by entering into that feedback loop that i talked about and it suppresses it in the brain so this is this is another thing it's a it's multifactorial the endocrine disruptors in the environment although I'm, i'm kind of known for that it's one factor but the rest come into play here and that's and that's a big one stress is a big one and men bear a lot of stress we carry a lot on our shoulders and we don't we're not very good at talking about it even with each other it, it's just important that this message get out there you that is one of the more harmful effects on your body is stress and that constantly elevated cortisol levels and it gets to where they just don't fall down below a certain level and that's just that's just rough because then as you mentioned before inflammation follows inflammation's a killer it's one of the most potent aging factors that is out there. And, and lots of drugs are aimed at reducing that inflammation. How do, you, how do you deal with stress? Well, you have outlets. You've got to have things that you know provide you diversion and recreation, a time to restore and sort of get out frustrations. Meditation, it's important. Prayer, a spiritual side, spiritual connection with something, you know, bigger than yourself. These are all Really important, I, I worry that this decline in, in testosterone is just symptomatic of something much bigger. men, families need good men, women need good men, they need good partners, they need devoted partners who are at full strength, capable. when you're fully optimized in your in your hormones, I call it foundational health. It may not be the answer to all of your problems, but it will provide a strong base, and you do not you want to rule it out for sure. If you're, if you're fine, then okay, good. And then we can, we can talk about what that means in the interpretation of, of labs and all those indicators. But strong men, I, I like what Jordan Peterson said, having strength as a man and and then choosing not to use it is admirable. What I mean by that is overpowering with it. You know, my, buddy, is,
0: uh, my buddy Travers says, be dangerous, but not a danger, right? It's huh? like, be, cap- yeah, yeah. Be, capable, be capable of harm, but don't be harmful. Yep. right and i think i think that that's something that's been somewhat lost and it sounds like we make a good tag team is what i hear you saying i handle the mm-hmm. psychosocial part of it you handle the environmental the biological part of it um i'm i'm mindful of our time and there's like two things that i really wanted to get into and so if you're okay with it i would love because there's there's this one piece that i think is a little bit more tactical where a lot of men are when it comes to testosterone, when it comes to sperm count, they're not 100% sure what they should actually be looking for. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff online that is trying to sell them stuff. And so they, they can give skewed readings of like where their testosterone rate should be. So for you as an expert in the field, can you give a little bit of a gauge of, you know, a man in his 30s or 40s, man in his 50s and 60s, where should their testosterone rates be at? And then, what about sperm count? Like, what should we actually be looking for? I think that would help men a lot.
1: Okay, sure. People always want something they can measure, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's these objective data, but let me stay at the at the outset here that the more important side of this is the subjective side. From a practitioner's perspective, you've got to look at what your patient looks like and feels like. If they're complaining of these things, these symptoms that we've talked about, low motivation you know, not able to to even maintain or or get something out physically out of a workout, and they have a testosterone level of, say, five or 600, it falls well within the normal range, maybe even mid-range, but they're still having those symptoms, then they deserve a trial to see if raising that testosterone doesn't make it better. Because of what I talked about, there's estrogen or androgen receptor sensitivity differences that are genetic. Some guys need a higher level to do the same things. So having said that, people do need a range to, to look at, and it'll be very broad on a lab sheet. It'll be like, say, they'll say normal is 350 to 1100. Oh, okay, well, thanks a lot. Appreciate that guidance. What we want is we want you to be optimal, meaning at the higher end of that range. And I, I actually don't mind seeing side effects in, in both men and women because then I know where their ceiling is. And one of those most common side effects is acne. Probably the first thing we see if it gets too high. So I want your followers to understand what they're looking for so that they can report that and say, I'm getting this. Because I I tell practitioners, your patient will not, your woman patient, she won't tell you if she's having excess hair growth. She'll just take care of it. Patients have got to take charge, be responsible for their own care and say, okay, I'm having this. But if they don't know what those things are, they they can't participate. So you should be, I tell them what they should be feeling should be feeling these effects sexually, and that should be discussed with your partner because we don't want to create an unevenly yoked relationship there where there's frustration and <laughs> misunderstanding. But then the other things too, are you feeling it? Are you feeling it in your, in your brain? Are you feeling it in your motivation, your outlook on life, feeling better about things like you want to do things, better little muscle tone, men and women, all these things. And when they understand what those are, they'll, they will chime in and participate. Whatever that level is, these things are indicated to treat the symptoms, not to treat a level. You can't be a lab slave on this stuff. If you lock yourself into there, and that's what most, honestly, most practitioners do because they don't know enough about the nuances of hormone therapy. And so they all they have to go on is the lab guide, reference range on the lab. Well, okay. You can still have patients that are suffering from a deficiency and have their labs fall within normal limits. So. That just isn't something that you can base it on. But I like to see, as a general rule, um, six, seven hundred on a total and a free testosterone for men to be around. This varies because labs will have different reference ranges and it's not because they disagree with each other. It's because they use different solvents and things to, in their in their measuring equipment. So that's why those things will differ. So look at what that reference range comes back at and ask yourself, am I in the top, say, 70, 75th percentile or so? If I can't get there because I have side effects, that's another matter. Generally speaking, that's kind of where you, you want to be and free and total. For women, it's about a tenth of that. It's funny because the World Health Organization has progressively lowered what they consider the, the minimum sperm count for a guy to be fertile. And, and I think they've dropped it down to 40,000 or, or, or even below. You want that to be upwards of, I mean, close, close to 70,000, 80,000 count. And, and it's per ml, so you need that to be up there, but also you need to know uh, all those other aspects that I talked about There's the morphology, the motility the the DNA, and they analyze all of that in the in the analysis, the sperm count.
0: so it's not just not just about the volume right sixty to seven thousand no. sperm count per milliliter, and then you want to understand morphology and mobility as well. yeah,
1: excuse me, it's not thousand it's a million. Okay, didn't sound right when I was saying it.
0: I was like, it sounds very, I was like, that sounds
1: low. (laughs) Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, sorry. And And that's what we've seen over the years. It used to be, I mean, the old saying in the kind of in the research community is your grandmother was more likely to get pregnant than you are. The fertility issues, it just back years ago when we didn't, and this is another thing that supports what I was talking about. People were in better condition, yes, but they didn't have all these environmental pollutants industry in this country is, has a carte blanche to the mantra there is reduce it. And if we have problems, we'll deal with them. Well, okay. It's, it's a little hard to backtrack on that when you, when you've got a, a multi-billion dollar industry going, right? Yeah. It's not the, it's not the most optimal way
0: of producing things for sure. Yeah. And you know, there's a big, there's a broader conversation there. I think about the industry that I think it would be very interesting to have, um, you in a, in a follow-up conversation, there's more that I could talk about here. I mean, we, I think we, you know, started to really get underneath the surface of these things and, we, you know, where testosterone should be at and, and sperm count and some of the things that impact them. There's a larger conversation about the thing that I'm about to ask you. I think we've only got a few minutes left, but I did want to ask about these weight loss drugs that have started to get a ton of attention. And I've heard people like Scott Galloway, who I've had on the show before, talking about how, there's indicators that they're not just weight loss drugs that people have been reporting a reduction in all sorts of cravings and addictive behaviors, right? Reduced, mm-hmm. you know, desire to drink alcohol or smoke weed or be on social media, and so it seems like these these drugs like Ozampic, and you, you're probably more familiar with what some of the other ones are uh, are becoming very very popular, and they're sort of being. Hailed as like the drug of the future, and that they can be used for all sorts of things. And so, I'd love for you to just give us your take on um, these weight loss drugs like Ozempic. What are some of the possible side effects that that people are starting to seek? I'm always a little weary when a drug comes out. and It's being hailed as like the the new golden child. Yeah. I don't know why. Maybe that's just the historical nature of the pharmaceutical industry. But
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So
0: what what's your what's your take on things like Ozempic and these weight loss drugs?
1: Well, you should be right. You rightfully concerned there. It's because you know I, I always say, "Don't trust, verify." It's a little mm-hmm. bit of a variation on what Reagan said: "Trust but verify." But you you have to assume that they're they're going to be driven by by shareholders' interests. And having said that, I like as a class of drugs, this is going to be the drug of the century. This class, the mm-hmm. what they call the GLP one agonist, and that stands for glucagon like peptide one agonist, and what they what they do is they'll, they will lower blood sugar levels, and that was their original market, which is huge, type 2 diabetes. A lot of what they do, we can actually do with diet and healthier living and lifestyle changes. I tell you, we have gone so long uh, being unhealthy and too heavy that there are actually some epigenetic changes that have taken place, and some people fight a real uphill battle losing weight. Mm. And so we can we can no longer assume that you're you're slovenly because you're you're overweight, and if you would just eat less, come on, you know, buck up. Well, it's not as easy as it sounds. So for the for these people, and this, so therefore, diabetes takes off, and then you get the metabolic syndrome, high blood pressure, uh, high cholesterol, and it's a bad situation. And these sem- semaglutide is probably the most that's Ozempic. Let's talk about that because it's probably the most popular, and if you can find it, it's sold out everywhere. It works. The, the appetite reduction is a central, centrally acting appetite suppressant, but also it slows down GI motility and uh, slows down gastric emptying time. So the food spends more time. It doesn't go through as fast. And so all of these things add up to to significant weight loss, like 20 or 30 pounds in someone that's that's not remarkably obese. So... What some of the concerns there are, though, that, that people are losing muscle mass along with the fat. It's not selective. A, a reduction in appetite is a reduction in appetite, uh, and that's less fuel in, and that becomes a big, bigger concern the older we get, because the older we get, the more protein need we have, because we don't recycle amino acids like we were when we were young. Well, how can you take in protein if you're full? This is a concern with. With these GLP-1 agonists, that I, I think it's kind of been minimized. It's not unknown. It's it's out there in the literature, but it's something they've got to take into consideration because if you if you lose muscle, muscle mass is critically important to metabolism. Critically important, and one of the things that, as part of aging, call it sarcopenia, it hastens death. We know that if as muscle mass reduces, there's they're less stable, obviously, but metabolically, it's the, it's the greatest sink and store of of uh, of glucose energy source so it's a it's a big deal so yeah, that's, that's my biggest concern i think with it yeah i had read and
0: heard the same thing was that the major concern was for people that are taking it and not continuing to work out you know not being active not being you know very mobile because of the muscle reduction and it, some of it, some of it was like significant you know it was like up to up to 30% in muscle reduction i like that's that's Lot of muscle reduction it is and so it is it's interesting in many ways, and unfortunately we're, we're gonna have to pause because we're we're out of time, and I think I would love to have you back on the show to go deeper into some of these veins um sort of pick the pick the brains of the the listener, you know what they loved, what they want us to go deeper in on because i I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, and so I just wanted to say thank you to you. And just where can people find you? Where can people find more about your
1: work and, and interact with you? Sure, thank you. So I'm on Instagram, I'm on social media, pretty much, pretty much everywhere as at Hormone Specialist, all, all one word, no space. Um, Instagram, we're on, on Facebook, TikTok, YouTube. So there's that. Our website is uh, hormonespecialist.net. And uh, I guess our biggest presence is probably on Instagram where I do, I do regular reels there. I realize people's time is tight. And So a 92nd reel is kind of a nice little tidbit or or bundle of information. So yeah, thank you for asking. I appreciate that and I hope it's been of helpful.
0: Of course. Well, we'll have all the links to that in the show notes and I really appreciate you taking the time to connect with me today and talk about some of these things that I think are bouncing around a lot of men's head regardless of their age. I you know, I see guys in their in their early 20s and guys in their 60s asking about this and so I think this is going to be um I think this is going to be a popular conversation and episode and I look forward to having you back on the show and for everybody that's out there make sure that you man it forward share this podcast with somebody that you know will enjoy it will enjoy the conversation the information and have a conversation about it until next week this is Connor Beaton signing on